old cry, get a horse, echoed in the sky. A skeptical nation visits upon the airplane the doubts it once felt for the automobile. The New York Times, December the 23rd, 1928. As the motorist rolls about the country in his more or less swift, silent, and luxurious car over roads as smooth for miles as a floor, he begins to note signposts of an odd sort. Perhaps they stand close by the wayside, perhaps at the distant edges of fields. If he can take his mind off the traffic long enough, he observes that each post supports a long, wide arrow pointer its flat side to the sky, and that a modest legend swinging below reads, Erected in the interest of aviation. Rounding a bend, he jams on the brakes with all his feet and hands, for just ahead, a plane with idling propeller is coming down directly across his path to a landing in a nearby pasture. It startles him to see a two-ton machine hanging in the air so close above his radiator. He feels as one who has narrowly escaped a disaster. Again, benighted in strange terrain far from home, he sees brilliant lights flashing weirdly on hilltops, where surely there is no road, no habitation. Their meaning comes to him at last. They are airway beacons, of course. A lot of people, he thinks, must be taking this flying business seriously in spite of its craziness. More of them are than he may guess. The 10,000th airplane number was issued a few days ago by the aeronautics branch of the Department of Commerce. That does not mean that 10,000 planes in the United States are now flying. The active list of licensed planes numbers about 2,250 and there are 1,830 planes besides that are officially identified, though not licensed. It means that the Commerce Department knows of 10,000 American planes that have flown or tried to fly in years still recent. The motorist is picked out to be the spokesman and to supply the text in this case because he is the typical citizen today. He is every man. He is the general public, and his opinion may be taken as that of the conservative majority of us. Like Mr. Rickard, he wishes that Mr. Tunney would journey to the fights by safe and sane automobile, rather than by perilous and not very sensible airship. And he sympathizes with the president of Dartmouth when the educator feels called upon to protest in all possible ways against the plan of the football coach and the supervisor of athletics to fly together to a distant game. If they persist in their wild resolve, they had better go each in a separate plane. Let us admit that motorists, meaning all of us, still look upon flying with skepticism. But just so the typical citizen of 30 short years ago looked upon motoring, Although the scoffing cry of, get a horse, is no longer heard in the land, its echoes still wander in the ether for the sensitive ear to catch. It was a loud cry and an exulting one. It voiced the confidence of human nature in the sure, ultimate triumph of horse sense over folly. 
When the grease-laden drive chain of the first benzene buggy fell off into the sand of the turnpike and stranded the begoggled and linen-dusted tourist miles from a blacksmith shop, it was clear proof to almost any person possessing brains that the automotive age had come to its inevitable and justly merited finish. To go tearing up hill and down dale, propelled by harrowing explosions and steering with a broomstick, was contrary to reason and to the experience of the human race. A man couldn't be that smart, and besides, the roads weren't made for such nonsense. It was about that time that R. E. Olds was cooling his heels outside of Wall Street offices, trying to interview shrewd financiers who could not see the wisdom of investing a few thousands of dollars in a plaything. Only a few decades before the era of Durier and Olds and Ford, an Ohio school board refused to allow a debate to be held in a schoolhouse on the question, are railroads practical? The cautious authorities said, such things as railroads and telegraphs are impossibilities and rank infidelity. There is nothing in the word of God about them. If God had designed that his intelligent creatures should travel at the frightful speed of 15 miles an hour by steam, he would have foretold it through his holy prophets. It is a device of Satan to lead immortal souls to hell. By 1898, the railroads had recovered from that stern rebuke. The bicycle had risen above similar discouragement, and it was now the automobile's turn. Doubt quickly forgets its mistakes and finds something new to go wrong on. To some sound citizens of the gay 90s, the horseless carriage was merely comic. I seen a snort wagon today, say, before I would ride in one of them things. To many others, both here and in Europe, it was a new and deadly kind of outlaw. In a time when the French were developing motor vehicles at a lively rate, an old act of parliament kept British invention under a strong padlock. It restricted road engines to four miles an hour in the country and to two miles in town and required that any such contraption prowling forth to seek whom it may devour should send a man, sixty yards ahead of it, to wave a red flag. The first motorist in Scotland was arrested and fined. The pioneer automobilist of England, John Henry Knight, spent much of his life dodging the police. One count against him was that he burned coal, thus smoking up the scenery. He explained that he could not keep up steam with coke. Testimony regarding the attitude of the world in the matter remains to bring the blush to the cheek of mankind. Thus, Lord Montague, I well remember in those early days the amount of persecution and abuse which the motorist had to encounter. Among our friends, we were considered mad, in the press, we were held up to public derision, sometimes as fools, sometimes as knaves, and every accident that happened, even remotely connected with the motor car, was attributed to the new juggernaut, as it was called. The papers were almost without exception hostile. Even the first friends of the automobile were half-hearted in their support. 
at a banquet in 1895, an enthusiast who may have had a glass too much predicted that cars would someday run 50 miles an hour. The great Panard whispered to a neighbor at the table, too bad there is always one person at every dinner who makes an ass of himself. As late as 1896, the learned men were fairly well agreed that the gasoline car was too terrible for earthly use. The August British Association for the Advancement of Science listened to a paper by A.R. Sennett, who reasoned that where the frivolous French had perfected automobiles for sporting purposes chiefly, the serious British would take up the subject in a more sober and mercantile spirit, and that in consequence steam would be the mode. Much remained to be done in regard to petroleum propulsion, he said, before heavy loads could be dealt with or passengers conveyed, free from excessive vibration and offensive exhalations and with a degree of luxury at all comparable with that which we have come to identify with horse-drawn vehicles. Mr. Brown of Belfast contributed remarks on the abnormal smell and the probable danger of oil engine. He himself owned a steam car in Ireland, but did not drive it for long distances, because he preferred to stay in the jurisdiction of the magistrate's court, where he was known. Great laughter. His only objection to his car was that a long time was required to heat up the boiler and raise steam, about an hour and a half. Now rose Mr. Ferguson of Ceylon and spoke quaintly for his island and India. He would remind the meeting that the form of religion obtaining there would offer material assistance in the introduction of mechanical locomotion, for Buddhism deprecated the use of animals for labor. The Buddhists would be encouraged by their priests to go in for motoring. The following solemn thought was added by Mr. Senate. With regard to possible dangers from the running of mechanically propelled vehicles upon the highways, we should not overlook the fact that the driving of a horseless carriage calls for a larger amount of attention, if not skill, upon the part of the driver than is necessary in regard to horse-drawn conveyances, for he has not the advantage of the intelligence of the horse in shaping his path. It is, consequently, incumbent upon him to be ever watchful of the course his vehicle is taking. In 1990, John Gilmer Speed, reviewing the progress of motoring in America, reported that most of the fashionables at Newport and also at Lenox had now been supplied with cars. In 1902, when 8,000 cars were made in the United States, the storm of disapproval was terrific. By the public, the automobile was looked upon as a rich man's toy and as the horse's natural enemy. Motorists were dangerous citizens and unmitigated cranks. Anti-automobile legislation poured out of the state capitals and politicians marched to victory and office under the brave banner, Down with Roadhogs! Prohibition and farm relief were minor issues in those good old times. Now it was discovered that the owner of a car had nowhere to use it, 
If he escaped the vegetables hurled by the indignant populace, he came to grief in mud or sand and had to be towed home by a farmer's team. Better roads seemed in order, but for motorists to back a good roads project was to ruin it. George E. Latham, in Munsey's, in 1903, observed that the railway and the bicycle had overcome prejudice through their sudden popularity as means of transit, but the automobile could not hope to do likewise. He advised car drivers to hide their identity under a bushel and not to agitate collectively for better highways. Being owners of cars, they were men of wealth and position, of course. Let them use their influence as leading citizens, but not Oh, not as motor fiends. Amid the roar of opposition, a few thoughtful people could faintly be heard giving the little stranger a hand. Ray Stannard Baker, who still put chauffeur in italics in McClure's in 1899, drew a fanciful word picture of a country touring station ten years ahead. There would be long lines of vehicles at the charging bars, each with its electric plug filling the battery with power. Men with repair kits bustle about. From a long rubber tube, compressed air will be hissing into pneumatic tires. There would be gasoline carts and road wagons too, busy filling their little tin cans with gasoline, recharging their tanks, refilling the water jackets, and looking to the working of their sparking devices. Also, there would be boys selling arnica and court plaster. Mr. Baker qualified as a major prophet, however, when he said that the future motor vehicle would be within one step of the ground and have a new and distinct form of its own. Cleveland Moffitt in 1900 automobiled in Fifth Avenue with a motorist friend and marveled at the driver's skill in missing handsome cabs. He foresaw a day when the average man might take up the pastime, but such a man would need strong nerves and vast knowledge. He must know how to fire up, how to leave the engine during a stop for luncheon, how to turn the starting crank briskly after a stop, how to blow off steam and adjust the sparking device and test the air pressure and change the gear connections and hook her up and reverse her and pick dust out of her check valve and a dozen other things besides interpreting every message of the gauges. Mr. Moffat believed that many persons in the dim future will prefer to travel from place to place more slowly than at present, by their own will and pleasure, rather than to rush blindly along iron rails. Frank A. Munsey wrote in 1903, The man who knows it from the outside only despises it and damns it on general principles. There is nothing too uncomplimentary to say of it and of the one driving it. It is an invention of the devil, as he sees it, and has no place or rights in a civilized community. But once inside of a really first-rate automobile, a marvelous change of heart comes over him. He finds himself lost in admiration and wonder. 
He is an easy convert. Everyone is. I have never known a case, however bitter and unreasoning the prejudice, where one didn't change squarely about on the very first ride in a good car. Thus encouraged by the far-sighted few, the automobile at last came into its kingdom. Despite the seemingly overwhelming consensus of opinion that declared against it, a consensus, said Mark Twain, examines a new thing with its feelings rather oftener than with its mind, while a consensus was proving by statistics and things that a steamship could not cross the Atlantic. A steamship did it. Another consensus is now skeptical of the airplane. But the plane flies right on. One thing the plane has in its favor that the automobile lacked, it takes its fledgling flights too high up for vegetables.